Hello, friends. This is Dave Pasqualone with the Remarkable People Podcast, Season 1, Bonus Episode, The Dr. Gleb Sapersky Story. The Remarkable People Podcast. Check it out. The Remarkable People Podcast. Listen. Do. Repeat. For life. Gleb, thanks for being here today. Thank you so much for inviting me, David. It's a pleasure. Oh, yeah, this is great. And ladies and gentlemen, as you know, the Remarkable People podcast is in the transition between season one and season two. And this is our very first episode with a YouTube feed, too. So hopefully you enjoy it and uh, tell us what we can do better next time because this is an experiment. But I'm really excited about having Dr. Gleb on because he is an expert in disaster avoidance. And he's going to talk to us today, talk about timely, about what's going on in the world, COVID-19, how it impacts businesses, and how businesses can say, hey, let's be better. Let's seize the opportunity presented here and not panic. So Gleb, why don't you give us a little bit of background about who you are and your story, and then we'll transition into where we are today. Happy to. Well, I became a disaster avoidance expert partially because I saw my parents suffering a lot of disasters. They, like very many other people, made decisions with their gut reactions, with their intuitions. And unfortunately, like very many people, they made bad decisions pretty often because we make bad decisions that when we go with our gut that lead to disasters. So that's an example was, uh, so there was this really one time when my dad, he was a real estate agent and he worked based on commissions. So there was about a six month period where he made a lot of money, but he hid the money from my mom, told her he made very little money and bought an apartment elsewhere, leased it out to some folks. In a couple of years, when my mom found out, she was very mad. She was very angry, very pissed. She ended up kicking him out of the house. So separately, separated for a while. He had to live in that apartment he bought for for those folks. And that was really hard for me as a kid. You know, having that, seeing not seeing my dad very often, seeing him pretty rarely. Uh, eventually, they reconciled, but she could never really trust him again. That really impacted me and made me realize that what my parents were telling me about going with my gut, trusting my intuitions, very often is not the right thing. But nobody sat me down and said, hey, kiddo, here's how you make the right decisions. Here's how you make the wrong ones. It's always just trust your gut, follow your intuitions. Now, Same how thing old in were school. You, how old were you at that point? 14. 14. Okay. Now, I just yeah. sure we have a frame of reference. Thank you. Sure. And then in high school, school, whatever, obviously nobody told me how to make decisions. In high school, that wasn't part of it. College, nobody taught me how to make decisions. Not part of college. Not in business school. That wasn't part of. That's not part of education in business school. So I decided to eventually just study it. How do you make decisions? What are the right ways to make good decisions and avoid disasters? Because that's how you avoid disasters. You know, you make decisions. You can have disasters in two ways. One is for an active decision on your part that leads to disaster, and there's a lot of bad decisions we can talk about. And second, through ignoring a decision you should have made, failing to foresee a situation that leads to a disaster. And I studied, started studying these topics, and as I started becoming more knowledgeable on them, people started approaching me to learn about them. So I became a coach, then consultant, then trainer and speaker, and I've been doing that for about 20 years. And because of the very, very little quality material available in the popular sphere about decision-making, I had to go into academia to study this, into higher education. So I became a researcher, a scholar, a professor, a doctor, got a PhD in co- and I studied cognitive neuroscience and behavioral economics. So I'm a cognitive neuroscientist and behavioral economist, and I have spent over 15 years in academia publishing peer-reviewed papers and whatnot. Now, the, all of this is combined in my latest book, Never Go With Your Gut, How Pioneering Leaders Make the Best Decisions and Avoid Business Disasters. My 20 years of experience consulting, coaching, and training, and I run a six-people company called Disaster Avoidance Experts, doing consulting, coaching, and training in these topics, and my 15 years in academia doing cognitive neuroscience and behavioral economics on decision-making. So that's me, and that's my story. <laughs> all right. Well, do this. Talk about some of our listeners we have listeners from all over the world, 48 countries, um, different demographics, different socio backgrounds. Talk about what cognitive decision-making is in a nutshell. 
So I think you're asking about cognitive biases. So cognitive biases are the decision-making errors that we all tend to make because of how we are wired. Now, the research on this topic, current cutting-edge research, shows that we are not wired for the modern environment, for modern decision-making, modern relationship decision-making, modern professional decision-making, modern business decision-making. We're not wired for that. We are wired for the savanna environment. Now, that's pretty simple to realize because the modern environment has really been around only since World War II. Our gut reactions, our intuitions, our feelings, our instincts are all wired for that savannah environment when we were hunters and gatherers living in small tribes of 15 people to 150 people. For example, our main threat response is the fight or flight response. That was a great response for the savannah environment. We had to deal with immediate, intense, in-the-moment threats. That was the major threat that faced us. So we had to jump at a hundred shadows to get away from that one saber-toothed tiger. You might have heard of this as the saber-toothed tiger response. So we're the descendants of all of those people who very successfully had a very strong fight-or-flight response. And right now, our main response to threats is the fight-or-flight response. Not a good response to the vast majority of threats in the modern world, because as you might notice, there are many less saber-toothed tigers in the modern world. There are many more other sorts of threats like the COVID-19 pandemic, which we'll talk about later, completely not a saber-toothed tiger threat, but people are responding to it as though it's a saber-toothed tiger. Another bad problem from that time period, from what how we're raised, is tribalism. So tribalism is a huge problem. We had to live in small tribes, as I mentioned, and those, in order to survive and thrive, we had to be very tribal. We had to look for people who are like us, think that in ways that other people like us were thinking, look for people who shared our values. Otherwise, if we weren't strongly tribal, we'd be kicked out of our tribe and we'd die, or our tribe would fall apart and we'd die. So neither of those situations is a good situation for us, right? So that's the problem, that tribalism and the fight-or-flight response are two big causes of decision-making errors that we make in the modern world. And the specific decision-making errors that we make are called cognitive biases. So you'll take a look at the list of cognitive biases in Wikipedia, and you'll see that there are over a hundred cognitive biases out there that cause us to make, that describe the kind of bad patterns of decisions we make. So there's, a, like I said, list of cognitive biases. My book, Never Go With Your Gut, How Pioneering Leaders Make the Best Decisions and Avoid Business Disasters, talks about the 30 most dangerous cognitive biases and how you can address them effectively. Now, let's talk about, give us a sample of one of the biases right now. Sure. So, for example, with COVID-19, since we started talking about that, the biggest problem with COVID-19 that I've seen is called the normalcy bias. Now, the normalcy bias refers to the fact that when we think about the immediate future, the medium-term future, We think of it like it will be normal. It will be like the past. So we envision the future as being like the past, at least the medium-term future of the next several years. That is a big problem in terms of COVID-19 because it's not like like the immediate past. Right now, our world is very different than it was just a couple of months ago. It's very drastically different. COVID-19, I'll tell you why. COVID-19 is not going to disappear in a couple of months, unlike a number of business leaders and political leaders and ordinary people are thinking and saying. It will not. COVID-19, we've seen very clearly that COVID-19 is going to be around for a while. So right now in the U.S., we're having pretty strict restrictions in most states, 30 states, and the federal government has also encouraged restrictions on going out. Now, that is helping address the problem, but the problem has grown to a much bigger extent than it has in a number of Asian countries like South Korea, like Hong Kong, which put strict restrictions in place before the COVID-19 really inundated those countries in Japan. So they had pretty good restrictions. Now they are thinking, hey, they were past the problem, we're safe, and they started lifting restrictions Well, guess what? COVID-19 is now ballooning, really breaking out in those countries that used to have strict restrictions. So what do you think will happen when we lift restrictions in a month or two? Of course, there will be a bigger outbreak and more problems will happen. And then there will have to be another round of restrictions. So we will not deal with COVID-19 until we have a vaccine. And having a vaccine will take a long time. 
you've heard the health experts, the 12 to 18 months optimistically. And when they say 12 to 18, that means 18 optimistically and or potentially longer. So 18 months in the most optimistic scenario to have a vaccine, actually develop one and prove that it's safe. And then how long will it take to mass produce it and distribute it and then vaccinate people actually have it be mass widely available? We'll take another 12 to 18 months. So two to three years in the most optimistic scenario. Now, there might be the first round of vaccines might very well not work out, might not be effective, might not be safe. So then we'll have to go to the second round of vaccines that will take three to five years. If we have to go to the third round of vaccines, that'll take seven to 10 years. So in a more moderate scenario, realistic, it might take three to five years. In a somewhat pessimistic scenario, it'll take seven to 10 years to develop a vaccine with us having to deal with waves of restrictions throughout that period. This is not an emergency. This is not, you know, a situation that we can use the fight or flight response for. But the vast majority of people are functioning right now in emergency mode. They feel like it will be a couple of weeks. They feel like it will be a month, maybe two months. And they're making really bad decisions because of it, because of this normalcy bias. They can't imagine that in a, such a short period of time, our world has become drastically different. But it has. Our world is completely different than it was in January 2020. It's very different and we will never go back there. It's going to be people will behave in a very different way if they stayed mostly cooped up in their house for even two to three years and there will be very different dynamics. So you need to understand and imagine the world as being very different. It feels very uncomfortable. It feels completely counterintuitive. So you can't process it with your emotions, with your gut reactions, with your instincts. You need to logic yourself into it. You need to reason yourself into it. You need to convince your gut reactions that the world is actually very different and it will be very different in the future, even though it completely doesn't feel like it. So that's just one example where the normalcy bias it causes us to make bad decisions. A related one here they want to highlight is called hyperbolic discounting. Now, hyperbolic discounting causes us to be very short-term oriented, highly prioritize the immediate future over the long-term future. And of course, as a result, we're making really bad decisions with COVID-19 right now, where we're thinking about, hey, what's going to be in the future? How am I going to protect my job or protect our profits? And not thinking about what's the long-term outcome. So for example, right now, a number of people are saying, well, maybe we should leave lift restrictions. You know, that's not going to be a big deal. The problem is that when you lift restrictions, you in a two-week period, four-week period, result in a lot of people getting sick. And then in a two-month period, hospitals becoming overwhelmed. So we're always going to be several weeks behind where we actually will be the peak of the situation from where we are right now. And that's something that people don't really process. They've This is why you've seen such bad behavior, such problematic behavior from business leaders and political leaders the majority of business leaders and political leaders who are not thinking of how serious COVID-19 is for them. They are just behind the time just because of the incubation period of COVID-19 and the impact of it on the health, people's health. So this is a, another problem, the hyperbolic discounting, causing people to make bad decisions in the face of COVID-19 and, of course, many other areas. Yeah, and what you were saying, it's our physical side and our mental side and our emotional side are definitely all connected. And a lot of motivational speakers will stand on stage and they'll say, hey, smile. And if you smile long enough, you'll start to feel happy. And you know, everything's interconnected. When it comes to what you were saying about these thoughts cause us to fear, to fear, and then it causes us to make these bad decisions. What are some steps we can take First off, personal, to put everything in perspective and to rewire our brain for the new world. Hmm. So the first thing you need to do is learn about these cognitive biases. You can't address a problem without learning about a problem. So the that's the first thing that you want to do. You'll want to learn about which ones are problem especially problematic in certain situations and which are most problematic for you. All of us are more prone to certain cognitive biases than others. For example, I'm 
very prone to the optimism bias. Now, the optimism bias is kind of like it sounds. I tend to be very optimistic about the future. I think the glass is half full. You know, I think the grass is green on the other side of the hill, even though it's often yellow. I tend to be risk blind. I focus on opportunities and I ignore threats. That's just my personality. I tend to have very high expectations of myself and of other people, exaggerate the expectations. So I'm often disappointed. So this is a bad problem for me as a business leader. I run a company of six people, disaster avoidance experts, training, consulting, and coaching. Now, this it helped me in many ways to have this optimism because it helps me inspire people, which is really important for a leader. It helps make me optimistic. It helps lift my mood and helps me go up in the morning and go be resilient against the troubles that I suffer from. And that's very important for entrepreneurs like myself to be. However, it also causes me to make a lot of mistakes. And this, if I just naturally go forward with my intuitions, there's a reason about half of all startups fail within the first five years, about two thirds of them fail within the first 10 years, and about three quarters fail within the first 15 years, because a lot of entrepreneurs are way too optimistic about their success, about their ability. You know, one of the top reasons, one of the top two reasons why startups fail is because they run out of cash. And they very often run out of cash during growth because they start to get an initial minimal viable product and they say, yes, let's grow, let's go forward. And they don't realize all the problems that are associated with growth. They underestimate the risks and then they run out of cash when they really shouldn't have been investing into growth. And this happens for large companies as well. I mean, look look at what's happening to WeWork right now. How many billions of dollars is that costing people? So th this happens with large companies and small ones alike, but just giving the example of entrepreneurs. So for me, the optimism bias is really problematic. And what I had to do was learn effective techniques to address it. So since David asked, there are a couple of techniques to address the optimism bias. I'll give you the example. One of them is really important. It's called probabilistic thinking, where you evaluate what are the actual probabilities of reality. So let's say I'm writing an email to a client and I want the client to agree to a project that I'm proposing. What's the probability that the client will actually agree to a project? What, I'm, what I do because I know I'm inherently optimistic and in order to calibrate myself, I have to learn how optimistic am I. So, so what I did was I started predicting, hey, I think that, you know, out of all of these emails that I write, clients will do what I want 70% of the time. So say 70% of the time, that's my prediction. Now, over time, I learned that I'm about 40% optimistic, 40 to 30% optimistic. So if I think that they'll do it 70% of the time, they'll actually do it 30 to 40% less than I think. So they'll do it maybe 40% of the time. So that is the extent of my optimism. And I had to learn to calibrate myself. And that is what you have to do if you're I've suffered from that calibration problem. If you're too optimistic, that is something that you need to learn about yourself. You need to start predicting what you think will happen in certain instances, see what actually happens, and then see by how much you are optimistic, how optimistic you are about certain situations, whatever it's, like I said, emails to clients or how long it will take you to accomplish a project or how much money a project will take, something like that. Now, you might also suffer from the opposite bias, being too pessimistic. Entrepreneurs very rarely suffer from this bias because people who are pessimistic don't become entrepreneurs. <laughs> they, it's too risky. <laughs> too risky to do that. So that's not a problem for entrepreneurs, but it's a problem for people who are, let's say, lawyers or COOs, accountants, CFOs, IT officers. Those are people who tend to be pessimistic. And this is, again, to be very clear, a spectrum. It's not, you know, you're either optimistic or pessimistic. It's a spectrum between very strongly optimistic, moderately optimistic, moderately pessimistic, very strongly pessimistic. And so is, the goal, I, is the goal balance? Is in the life. goal is balance. Yeah, good. The goal, the goal is the goal is balance. So that's why I'm saying by how much are you optimistic and by how much are you pessimistic? So you want to calibrate yourself to bring yourself to making the perfect as perfect a decision as possible. You know, if you are 60% pessimistic, you want to improve. You want to overestimate the likelihood that the client will answer. Let's say something like that. So that's the one aspect. That's one solution. Now the other solution for more serious issues that you know, if I want to make a serious project, if I want to run a serious uh, campaign of some sort, 
that is when I don't simply rely on my own calibration because that's kind of less reliable than going to someone who is pessimistic with my ideas and asking them to critique my ideas and help me calibrate and improve my ideas. Now, I'm an optimist, and that means that I have 20 ideas before breakfast and I think they're all brilliant. <laughs> that's how it feels. That is a problem. I know to my bitter experience, that it's not, they're not all brilliant. So what I do now when I have a supposedly brilliant idea, you know, or brilliant ideas, I take them to a pessimist, to someone who works in my company and say, hey, what do you think of these? And they say something like, well, these are all half-baked potatoes, but maybe these three out of these 20 are, are worth finishing baking. So let's work on these three, fix all the flaws and implement them effectively. That is how a pessimist thinks. Pessimists are terrible at generating new ideas. That's not their strength. What they're great at is evaluating existing ideas, seeing the exaggerated flaws of each one, You know, that, and that's why they don't generate ideas. They see too many flaws. But they take a look at the existing ideas, see the flaws of each one, and then they are great at correcting them and implementing the ideas. So now, that's their strength. When you hire your employees... Do you look for that personality trait to offset and balance you up? Like, did you specifically say? Yep, yep, exactly. So it's very tempting for me to, to my gut reactions, to my instincts, to my intuitions, it's very tempting for me to hire other optimists. It's called the halo effect, where I tend to look for, it's part of tribalism. I tend to look for people who think like me, who have the same values, have the same intuitions. So I tend to want to work with other optimists. It feels great. You know, we all have 20 ideas before breakfast and we all think they're brilliant and we all reinforce each other. But what would happen if all six people at my company had these beliefs? Well, we'd have 120 ideas and then we'd be all reinforcing each other, saying they're all brilliant. And then we'd be trying to implement 120 ideas. And that's how startups go bankrupt. <laughs> not a good <laughs> exactly. idea. They, exactly. Yep, this is not good. So what you need to do, what I learned I need to do, is make sure to hire a number of pessimists to have a balance and have the optimists on my team run their ideas by pessimists, and including up highlighting the importance of criticism, of people being devil's advocates, and criticizing ideas in a constructive fashion. We, what we do is we actually separate the brainstorming. So we have optimists engaging in brainstorming ideas and then pessimists engaging in evaluating ideas. That's a much better way of collaborating than trying to having pessimists like forcing water out of stone to try to get them to generate ideas. This is not helpful. The traditional brainstorming approach is actually quite not helpful. It hinders the abilities, doesn't play to the strength of pessimists and doesn't and evaluating ideas doesn't play to the strengths of optimists. So you give the evaluation to pessimists and while optimists generate, that's the much better way of collaborating together. Yeah, I tend to agree with you. The brainstorming sessions I've been part of from small groups to room of 100, I think that was probably the largest brainstorming session I've been in. The key factor was that respect. Because obviously in a group of 100, you have optimists and pessimists and everything in between. But when you have that over-the-top pessimist who overtly and out loud bashes somebody's idea. That just destroys all the juice in the room. Yeah. But um, yeah, I, I would trek. I think that's a great idea to kind of have two separate groups. And, you know, I think what is there more four major personality types? I mean, you have sub breaks that go into the hundreds, but I think it goes like four than 16 in most personality tests. Is that what you understand? It depends. So there are different ways of dividing personalities. And yes. it really depends on the kind of personality test you're talking about. I'm not talking about personalities here. I'm talking about specific cognitive biases and which ones people are most prone to. And this is kind of different from personalities as such. You know, yes, I guess what I was saying is part of a personality, you, wouldn't you, a certain personality type, like if you were looking at this method, a certain oh, yes. personality yeah. would be persuaded to be optimistic or to be pessimistic. So balancing mm -hmm. off your team, that might be a tool to use. But let me yes. ask you this question. You know, people argue back and forth, is, or is, are we learned behavior or are we born with our behavioral patterns and thoughts? I personally think it's a combination of both. Mm -hmm. What is your perspective on that? Well, it's not a perspective. The research on this topic shows that we're definitely a combination of both. Our genes, depending on the, on the specific trait, our genes determine more or less of it. So, for example, introversion and extroversion. If you look at babies, you'll see that some babies 
just go out and explore the world and they kind of play with other babies and they, they have a great time, you know, toddling around the, on their little feet or like crawling around on their hands and knees. But other babies prefer to sit in a corner and play with blocks. <laughs> and you can very clearly see the introversion and extroversion already in people when they're babies. And that's fine. This is part, so this is an introversion and extroversion is something that's much more genetically determined. It would be very hard for someone to change their introversion or extroversion. And I'm being very, to be clear, introversion means you draw energy from being by yourself and you're drained from interacting and socializing with other people. Extroversion means the opposite. You draw energy from socializing with other people and you're kind of being, you, you get drained when you're by yourself. That doesn't mean that an introvert can't effectively interact with other people and that an extrovert can't spend time doing stuff by themselves, but it's where you draw your energy from. That's, that is not something you can really change. What you can, so that's something that's much more genetic than anything else. Let's pause, other, there for, pause there for a quick second because I think that's one yeah. of the best descriptions and explanations I've ever heard. I know several people like myself that yes, we will be on stage a lot. We will be in front of people a lot, but that's not who we are. Like inside, I love people and I love being up there or teaching, but at the end, man, I just want to go back and take a nap because it just wipes me out. But then Mm -hmm. if I'm in my office and I'm working on a project and creating, I could go all night and not eat dinner and not even realize it till 16 hours later. Yeah. So what you explain is truly important for the listener. So if you're listening and you know in your heart who you are, but you're being told by other people your whole life, that's not who you are. Don't listen to that. Listen to what's real, what's inside of you. Because what Gleb's saying, that was a great definition. Thank you, man. Thank you. Oh, you're very welcome. And uh, yes, yeah, so whereas, and I'm also an introvert. So even though I do a lot of shows and do a lot of public <laughs> speaking and presentations and coaching and consulting, I'm an introvert. So the, I need my alone time in order to recharge. Whereas extroverts recharge after a conference by going to the bar and spending six hours at the bar. <laughs> and that's how extroverts recharge. So they're kind of screwed in the current COVID-19 pandemic. But, you know, this is a different story. <laughs> yeah, no so, doubt, right? No doubt. Yep. So be, hey, before we transition there... I have one more core question about what you do in the philosophy because you and I, we don't really know each other that well, but this show, we don't have to agree. But one um, question I really have for you is this. I'm a Christian. I believe that there's a God. I trusted him as my savior and I have the Holy Spirit inside of me. So I know I have learned behavior. Mm -hmm. I know I have instinct and maybe I'm even defining these wrong, but how they process in my brain so I have learned behavior, I have mm-hmm. instinct, mm-hmm. and then I have just the leading of the Holy Spirit sometimes where it's like I, I, there's no basis for what I'm feeling or thinking or knowing the decision I need to make, but it's there. So processing that, processing that through your filter and your world and your education and your knowledge, is there three categories? Is there two? How do you break that down to differentiate? Because I'm a big believer in fact over feeling. Feelings always feelings are good indicators, like a car gauge. Yeah, you got to know what's going on with your car. But if you live by that feeling, you're going to run into a ditch and go mm-hmm. into destruction. So fact versus feelings, real clear for me. Mm-hmm. But the learned behavior versus the instinct versus the leading of God, sometimes that gets a little gray to me. Can you help me understand that in the listeners? Sure. So the learned behaviors, so we talked about kind of extroversion and introversion. And, you know, there's no way to intervene in that. You can act more extroverted or introverted and so on. Now, the learned behaviors is a little bit more of a complex thing, and it builds up on top of your genetic intuitions. For example, we talked about tribalism. So tribalism is very basic. It's very fundamental. It's very something that will definitely be the case. There will definitely be some tribalism, very powerful going on inside you. But the way it's expressed will be through learned behaviors. So for example, you talked about Christianity, right? Where in a certain time period in this country, there were serious tensions between Protestants and Catholics. And that was an issue of tribalism, where that was that was a learned behavior. So right now we have many less tensions between Protestants and Catholics in the United States. Yeah, when I grew up, everybody who was Catholic would call me a Protestant, and Protestant was anything that wasn't a Catholic. 
Exactly. And right now, that's much less of an issue, much less of a tension right now. And that's so that's an l- example of a learned behavior with a religious connotation where there was a tribalism aspect to having certain beliefs, but the underlying impulse came from our gut intuitions that we should be tribal. And you'll find that in any situation, there's a temptation to divide into tribes. When you're within a company, you know, I see a lot of tribalism going on with what's called teamwork, where you have, let's say, the sales team fighting with the HR team, where you have operations fighting with marketing, where you have legal fighting with everyone else. <laughs> this, is yeah. the, this is the kind of learned behaviors that we see, but they all build up on top of our instincts. So that's the dynamic that you want to be thinking about, that our instincts underpin our basic intuitions, you know, or to give an example from a foreign context, right now here in the US, almost nobody cares about castes when you see the Hindu religion. But if you go to India, you'll see a lot of people caring about castes, which castes you belong to and so on. So that is the form of tribalism that's expressed there that we really don't care about here. (laughs) That's an example of how our learned behaviors build up on tribalism, build up on our instincts like tribalism. So this is what you'll see. You'll see a different, different forms of fight or flight response. People learn how to have a fight or flight response in the, their own context, what it means for them. But the fight or flight response will still be there and it will, it will lead to some kind of learned behavior that it's a flight or, fight or flight response. So that's how instincts build up or that's how learned behaviors build up on top of instincts. Does that clarify things? Yeah, yes, it does a little bit and it, it's a deeper understanding. So when you have like the premise of your book is not to listen, to, to make the counterintuitive decision. Talk about that. Let's, let's understand that better, and then let's transition to the COVID crisis. The premise of my book is to notice when your natural and primitive impulses are driving you in the wrong direction. Now, you'll have a lot of people like Tony Robbins saying, be primal, be savage, or Malcolm Gladwell saying to blink and so on. I tell you to do the opposite thing. Don't be primal. Don't be savage. Your primal and savage instincts will lead you in the wrong direction. I mean, think about, let's say, eating a box of donuts, right? Eating some donuts. There's, for some reason, donuts come in a box of 12. (laughs) Now, should you eat a box of 1,000 donuts? No, you shouldn't. That's really bad for your health. But we are very tempted to do so when we see a box of dozen donuts because in the savannah environment, when we came across a source of sugar like honey, apples, bananas, whatever, we should eat as we had to eat of it as much as possible in order to survive and thrive. We're the descendants of those who successfully ate a lot of sugar when they came across a source of sugar. So it feels very natural, very primal, very savage to eat a box of dozen donuts. And it's very hard to stop when you eat one donut, you know, two donuts, you're pretty much guaranteed to eat the whole box if you don't stop yourself. And it's very hard to learn how to stop yourself. Hopefully, most of the listeners to this podcast have learned how to manage their eating, their physical fitness. And it's very important to have a good, healthy diet in order to be physically fit. But that's very hard with the Western diet, with the American diet. There's a reason that countries where the American diet is introduced have their populations have much more obesity because companies like Dunkin' Donuts want to feed us as much of their product as possible in order to make money. That's understandable. That's the capitalist spirit. It goes very much against what's healthy for you, but it helps the profit margins of companies stay healthy. So if you don't want to give into that, you need to change your you need to make sure that you're physically fit, which means part of it is eating well. Unfortunately, we are not we don't realize that we're not mentally fit, that we just go with our intuitions, our primal savage states when we're making decisions, when we're going with our gut, when we're trusting our intuitions. We wouldn't trust our intuitions and eating at that box of dozen donuts. It feels very comfortable to eat all of them. It feels just as comfortable to do the fight or flight response. Let's say when somebody gives you when your boss gives you constructive critical feedback. It's very tempting to either ignore the feedback and say, whatever, doesn't know what I, what he's talking about. That's the flight response, or to you know talk back and say you are absolutely wrong. I'm right. You're a jerk. Why would you say that? Neither of those are good for you. Neither the flight response or the fight response are good for you. 
the best thing to do would be to internalize the constructive criticism of your supervisor, or if you're a boss yourself, then your client, your your customer, and be able to change your behavior accordingly to make sure that you achieve your goals, your business goals. So that's really important to be able to do, but it's completely counterintuitive. It goes against your intuitions. My book talks about how do you notice when your gut reactions are driving you in the wrong direction? How do you notice when those primal savage gut reactions are causing you to make the bad decision? And then how do you change your intuitions to be civilized, not to be primitive, not to be savage? What does it mean to be civilized? Civilized means adapting to the current environment, adapting to the modern environment, to the civilization in which we find ourselves. So that's what my book talks about. What are the behaviors? What are the mental habits? How do you become mentally fit? by developing the mental fitness, mental habits, just like you develop the physical fitness habits of eating well and you know going to the gym to exercise, well, before the gyms were all closed. And yeah, how right. Do develop, how do you develop the mental fitness habits of making the right decisions, which are completely counterintuitive? I mean, the probabilistic thinking, the calibration that I mentioned, that's very counterintuitive. It goes very much against your intuitions, but it's very important in order to counteract the optimism bias and the pessimism bias and a number of other cognitive biases. And of course, getting the external perspective that I mentioned from a pessimist is very important, very counterintuitive. It's very hard to go to somebody who has the exact opposite perspective from you and get them to help you filter and evaluate your ideas. It feels very uncomfortable, but it's exactly the kind of thing that you need to do. The uncomfortable thing goes against your intuitions, go outside of your comfort zone and take those mental habits collaboration, getting an outside perspective, and many others that I describe in my book in order to make the right decisions for your goals. I think that's, I think we use different terminology, but I think that's spot on because what you'd refer to as tribal, I consider lust. So what I lust for, oh yeah, what do I lust for? I want to eat like just nonstop, man. I want to go grab women and put drugs in me. And those are the carnal, lustful things that we want to just gorge. But as soon as it's over, man, it's no fun. You feel like crap short term. And then long term, you have serious problems. So what you're talking about, that self-discipline and that retraining your mind and and Mm -hmm. not listening to that instinct, that tribal instinct, I agree with that. Excuse me. I agree with that completely, man. So -hmm. let's let's start transitioning now. I want to respect your time. Um, We have a COVID-19 global pandemic. I personally don't know what's real and what's fake, and I have suspicions, but I don't think anybody really knows the extent of how dangerous this virus is. Uh, the economic impact it's having on the world, especially America, a $2 trillion uh, package was just released where we're printing money like Monopoly now. So it's really, in my mind, I'm looking at this five years, 10 years down the road, and it's it's pretty grim unless we can make a real turnaround. Mm-hmm. But for the person listening who runs a small business, for the individual who's an entrepreneur, talk them through this process. What advice do you have for them and how can they remap their brain, so to speak, to help with the situation? So the first thing to do, as I mentioned earlier in the show, is to understand that this is a long-term problem. This is not a short-term problem. So a lot of people think it's a short-term problem and they're reacting to it as though it's an emergency. As though it's the fight or flight response. They're using their fight or flight response. And it's very natural. It's very intuitive. It's very comfortable to do the fight or flight thing. But this is the right, this is the wrong, wrong, wrong time to use the fight or flight response to either be defensive or be aggressive. Now, the defensive response is ignoring it, is saying it's not a big deal, just like a common cold, whatever, it'll go away, you know, whatever. I mean, we've seen political leaders and business leaders across the world try to ignore it and look at what's happening in Italy and, of course, what's happening in New York City and Louisiana, Miami, and so on. I don't need to go into that. Obviously, ignoring it is a bad response. The fight response is also a bad response because what happens with the fight response 
is that there's an immediate short-term crisis mentality saying, okay, we need to fix it, we need to solve it. And by putting all our immediate forces into solving it, we'll be able to deal with it and then we can relax and everything will be fine. So, you know, two weeks of cramping it down or a month or so on. But that's not how this pandemic works because, of, like I just um, said earlier, it will take at least two to three years to actually deal with it maybe as long as three to five years. And if we're unlucky, maybe as long as seven to 10 years. So this is a very much of a long-term situation. And what you need to do, whether you're an individual, whether you're a small business owner, whether you're a leader or a professional in a larger business, is have a long-term game plan. That means understanding that what we're in is not an emergency. What we're in is the new normal. This is the new normal. It's going to be a time of shortages. It's going to be a time of restrictions, shutdowns and lifting of restrictions and then shutdowns again. This is what we're in for for the next two to three years, optimistically speaking. And I was going to say, you're an optimist. You're an optimist and you're saying this. So people need to listen. Yes, this is optimistic. I mean, there's... You know, just just the numbers don't add up any any other way. Twelve to eighteen months for a vaccine, then twelve to eighteen months for a and that's the optimistic, super optimistic timeline for a vaccine. Twelve to eighteen months, twelve to eighteen months to mass produce it, distribute it, vaccinate people. That there's no way to make it more optim more optimistic than that. So that's two to three years, and it's quite possible that it's going to be three to five years or seven to ten years. So you know you. As a business leader, if you are running a business or if you care about your professional career, you also don't want to prepare for the most optimistic scenario. That's silly. (laughs) Preparing for the most optimistic scenario is just not a wise professional business decision. You need to be prepared for a more pessimistic scenario, for the seven to 10 year scenario, or at least the three to five year scenario. So what would you do with your business? If it's a three to five year scenario, what would you do with your career? What would you do with your private life? Understanding that this is going to be going on for three to five years until we have a vaccine and it's going to be widely produced and distributed. What you need to do if you're a business leader is change your business model. It's very fundamental, very simple and very clear. It's as clear as that. So you need to internally change your business model from the team setting. You've shifted, you're shifting from being in the office to running a virtual team. Now, people can do that okay for the first couple of weeks when they're in emergency mode, when they think, okay, adrenaline is rushing in and we're all rallying around the situation. We're all rallying around the flag and helping support the company. But that will not last more than a couple of weeks. People can't function on adrenaline for more than a couple of weeks. You know, in a month or so, that will be all over. So, you need to figure out how to motivate people. That's going to be one of the most fundamental things. People who are in the office are used to being motivated by other people around them, working around them. There's that social comfort. There's the, the tribalism. They're used to it. Now they don't have it. You know, they just have their pets around and their kids who aren't motivating them to work. <laughs> so you need to figure out how to motivate your team to actually do the work when the immediate crisis, when it's clear that this is not going to be a short-term crisis, but a long-term new normal. So you need to, mot- to look at the motivation. You need to look at problems. Right now, problems in the office are easily solved by people popping into each other's office or just meeting each other in the hallway, chatting about things, checking in, nipping problems in the butt. That will not happen anymore. You will need to figure out how to problem solve, how to notice problems, how people will notice various sorts of problems, conflicts, tensions, and how they will solve them. So problem solving, problem noticing, and problem solving. You need to be able to do that. Another thing you need to do is accountability. If you're a business leader, you are used to having accountability through walking around the office, checking in with people, seeing what's going on, you know, having meetings with them, having staff meetings. That's an easy way to have accountability. You know, it might have been, it might have felt difficult before, but it's much easier than virtual team accountability where you can't see people. You can't, you know, check in on them as they're working in their office. So how do you hold people accountable effectively? And finally, last but far from least, perhaps most important, is how will you cultivate trust in the team? Right now, or in the office, trust is cultivated by people meeting around the water cooler or just chatting over lunch, saying, hey, what's up? What are your kids doing? How are your pets? You know, what's going on? How was your weekend? That 
builds up trust, that gets people to know each other as human beings and cultivates that underlying trust that is so important for a team to function. You will not have that anymore. And the vast majority of companies don't aren't doing the re trust replacement. They don't have a way of replacing that cultivation of trust, which is so important for a team to function. So these are just uh, four things. Now, the other thing that if you're a larger business, you want to think about changing your reporting structure. Your reporting structure for virtual teams should be different than it is for in-person teams because, of course, your function will be different. So if you're a larger business, you want to change that reporting structure. So those are five things internally in your business model that you want to change. And of course, you want to change your external service delivery. Right now, your clients, your customers are giving you a break. It's a pandemic, whatever. They're, they're being tolerant of the situation. But it will not last that long because in a, in a couple of weeks, in a month, they will realize this is the new normal. So they will want you to actually serve their needs in a way that's adapted to the new normal. You want to start figuring out that out right now. How will you serve their needs in a virtual setting and not in a face-to-face -face setting? How will you serve their needs in this context of the next three to five years being like this? Then you also want to figure out how will you cultivate relationships with your clients, with your customers. You Previously, of course, you cultivated them face-to-face -face through trust, through collaboration. Now, I'm working with a company of lawyers right now that's specifically working on this question. The couple of hundred lawyers they can deliver their documents through, you know, DocuSign and so on. They can deliver their advice. But cultivating trust with their clients is the most important assets they have. And that applies to all sorts of service professionals where cultivating trust with clients is incredibly important. And that's done overwhelmingly face-to-face -face, where you meet with someone, you shake their hand, you pat them on the shoulder, you have lunch. Those are things that you will not be able to do anymore. How will you build up those relationships? How will you cultivate that trust with clients? You need to figure out how to replace that. So those are the sorts of things that you want to be thinking about. And as part of it, you want to be thinking about your long-term plan, your strategic plan. You, the current strategic plan, of course, needs to be very seriously advised. You need to have a very serious pivot where you change your strategic plan for the long term because the current plan is obviously not, you know, has gone out the window. So you need to figure out what will be your plan, including all of these shifts to the business model in the long term, in the three to five year period, and how will you address the competitive field? Now, a lot of your competitors will still be functioning in emergency mode, so they will be hobbled by the current situation. If you are going to be thinking ahead and being smart, adapting to the new normal quickly and revising your plan, you will be ahead of your competitors. So you want to figure out how to seize market share in this environment, how to niche yourself effectively for the new world that you find yourself in, and how to compensate for the problems that your competitors will find yourself themselves in to take some of their clients. So these are the kinds of things that businesses and professionals should be thinking about right now. Yeah, and for myself, for the listeners, some people haven't come to the acceptance that there is going to be a new normal. So Gleb has given some great information. He's moving fast through it. If you need to back up, rewind this recording, rewatch this video, and really listen to what he's saying, because it's true we have our worlds are shifting and changing, and it's devastating what we know. But we also have huge opportunity that's never been in the world before. And if you can focus and accept the new normal and seize the opportunity, those five points Glub was talking about, you could end up ahead of where you were and certainly ahead of the competition. So Glub, I really appreciate you sharing that, brother. Excellent. Glad to share that, David. So, okay, well, listen, I want to respect your time. I know we're coming to the end of our session. Is there anything else you want to talk about or share before we, we cut this down? No, I think that's the important things that people want to be thinking about. Oh, the other thing I want to make sure about COVID-19 is that I talked about business, but of course, this applies just as much to individuals and their lives. You want to think about 
relationships, maintaining your relationships. It's going to be really important for you to maintain your relationships. But right now, your relationships have changed in very major ways. So let's say you spent previously with your loved one, with your romantic partner, uh, in let's assume that they're in your household, you've spent maybe an hour a day with them. Now you're spending 24-7. <laughs> you're probably going to get into each other's face and into each other's space. So you need to figure out how to change your dynamics and have serious conversations about doing that so that you don't really annoy upset each other and frustrate each other. I predicted there will be a spate of divorces going on you know, six months from now, a year from now, for people who haven't taken those steps. If your college student son has or daughter has moved back into your house, you need to figure out how to live with that person for a long time because they won't colleges will not be opening back up for a very long time. I can pretty much tell you that. So this is something that you need to figure out. How will you live with them in that same space? How will you share that same space? How will you have network access when they're streaming Netflix all the time? You know? <laughs> so think about that. Think about what you're going to do with your other children. If you have younger kids, when schools are closed, they will be closed for a very long time and summer camp will not happen. I can pretty much guarantee that. So you need to figure out how will you manage your kids who are around? How will you manage your relationships with them? That means a three to five year period, getting some loosening and some restrictions where you know maybe the colleges will be open in the fall and then closed again in a couple of months. So you need to figure out how you will do that, how you'll manage that. Same thing for schools. And you will also want to think about how to manage your relationships with people who are farther away from you, people who aren't part of your household, where there's a strong request for social distancing from anyone who is not in your household. How will you manage your relationships virtually? And you want to invest into learning these virtual methods of collaborating, interacting with each other, replacing the kind of activities that you used to spend your time with. So I'm trying to replace all the, let's say I play tennis with people. So that's something I quite enjoy. I can't do that right now. So I'm trying to replace that, both the physical activities and the social activities, physical activities. And, you know, I'm doing some more gardening and stuff like that. Social activities, I'm doing more online game playing with these same people in order to replace that. So you want to think about replacing these and making sure to still cultivate your relationships. It's very important to cultivate your relationships in this difficult time. Awesome, Gleb. Thank you for your interview today and the wisdom you shared with us. If we have a listener who's either personal or a business and wants to get a hold of you, what's the best way to reach you? Well, the book that I mentioned, Never Go With Your Gut, How Pioneering Leaders Make the Best Decisions and Avoid Business Disasters is available in bookstores everywhere, but many are closed. So I'll put a link. By... I'll put a link in the show notes for that. Yeah. It's published by a great traditional publisher called Career Press. So you can, of course, get it at the show notes. Uh, get it on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Audible. There's an audiobook version as well as physical and digital versions. My own resources are available at disasteravoidanceexperts.com. Blogs, videos, podcasts, online classes, manuals, decision aids, virtual coaching, training, speaking, all of that so sort of stuff, webinars. Again, disasteravoidanceexperts.com. And there's an eight video-based module class at disasteravoidanceexperts.com forward slash subscribe. I'm making the wisest decisions. Again, disasteravoidanceexperts.com forward slash subscribe. Finally, I'm very available on LinkedIn. That's my favorite social media. So connect with me there. If you have any questions, ask me any questions there. Dr. Gleb Sipursky, G-L-E-B-T-S-I-P-U-R-S-K-Y. All right, Gleb. Well, to the listener, thank you for being here today. If you've walked away with nothing else, just remember to stay calm, be focused, live by fact, not by feeling. Check out Gleb's website and book. And if you have any questions, look at the show notes. If you found value in this, let us know. Give us a five-star review. This is our first video cast. If we can't get a five-star, give us feedback. Shoot me an email. Go through the website. Let me know what we can do better. And uh, we want to serve you and bring you valuable content like Dr. Gleb here. Gleb, thank you for being here, my friend. You truly are a remarkable man. And to our listeners, we love you. Have a great day and keep moving forward. Till next time, this is Dave Pasquale with the Remarkable People Podcast. Bye. The Remarkable People Podcast. Check it out. The Remarkable People Podcast. Listen. Do. Repeat. For life.